This Washington Post Live podcast is presented in partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, advancing new frontiers of science, data, policy, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and equity and economic opportunity. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former executive director of the World Food Program, Etherin Cousins, and director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, Ricardo Salvador, join the Washington Post to discuss how we can create more resilient food systems. Let's listen. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today for our conversation uh, on a subject that could hardly be more important. We are so pleased to be joined today by a couple of experts in the field. Erthrin Cousin has a very broad and deep background in in government, in nonprofits, and spent five years as the head of the World Food Program. And Ricardo Salvador has spent 30 years as as an advocate for a a more more equitable and sustainable global food system. He is the director and the senior scientist for food and environmental programs at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And I think for for those of us who are fortunate enough to live in prosperous parts of the world, uh, the COVID the COVID pandemic was a real shocker. To walk into our grocery stores and suddenly see empty shelves, to see massive amounts of food waste, and of course to see prices just going through the ceiling. But these are not new issues for you. And they are also a reminder that we're living on a planet where 9% of the population is either hungry or in danger of becoming so. So Earthwind, could you explain to us a little bit about why our food system is so unstable and so fragile? Well, thank you very much for this opportunity to spend time with you and your viewers today to talk about this subject, because whenever we can bring attention to the challenges in the food system, not just the challenges that have faced the affluent, but those that have faced the vulnerable populations around the world, we're much more likely to solve it. So what is the problem? We have a food system that is in the United States uh, and globally efficient, but not agile. And what we, what COVID did was unbear the challenges of the lack of agility in the food system. In the United States, what we saw was that the efficient food system that provides, had basically has two channels, one that's institutional, one that's retail. That institutional challenge, channel that provides foods to restaurants, schools, um, uh, and, and other large volume food producers, um, when there was a disruption in that food system because we, we uh, people were sheltering in place and restaurants were closed, hotels were closed, et cetera, there was no place for that product to go. 
And on the other side, the retail food system, there is a system of, re of demand that the food producers the, and uh, are accustomed to delivering to retailer, wholesalers and retailers in certain uh, commodity uh, quantities to support um, the and, and anticipated demand. And what we saw was an increase on that side. So the agility, the lack of agility in that system created food that was unstable and unaffordable. Um, and so we saw people move from in, in, we also saw the other challenge that 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 uh, the COVID uh, revealed was when there was a loss of jobs and income that people who normally would buy were found themselves in a food line, and we don't have a a uh, social safety net that could quickly provide the food that was necessary. So what you saw was people without food in lines, you saw higher prices in grocery stores, and we witnessed the farmers dumping milk, culling uh, their herds, and, uh, and uh, plowing under um, the produce in their fields because they had no market. And the, what we recognize is that the, the need is not just for efficiency, but also for agility in the food system. So Ricardo, how, how did the system become this, this fragile, this unstable? And um, is it more centralized than it used to be? And, and looking forward, where do you think resources should go to, to make us more prepared for this sort of disruption? Yeah, I, I think that the issue is that this is a very powerful global logistical system. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the concept of uh, centralization, which kind of conjures up the question of whether there's some central governance or some central uh, means of regulating the way that decisions are made within the system. Uh, what has led us to the situation that we have is actually over-specialization and concentration, a lot of monopoly power within the system. Uh, the system, uh, is made up of lots of different parts. You know, it's the definition of a system, lots of different parts working in coordination to fulfill a particular objective. And I think that what we're dealing with here, as Earthman has described, is a system that when confronted with an unexpected shock, demonstrated two major vulnerabilities. One, it was not resilient to that shock. There were all the disruptions that Earthman just described to us. Another, it is manifestly um, inequitable because we all experienced it in different ways. And so the reason why my answer to your question is that we're over-specialized uh, explains a lot of this, is that the, the system is geared toward everything functioning uh, uh, to uh, smooth conditions, uh, to perfection. Um, the people that have uh, specialized in epidemiology and have told us, have been warning us, uh, I'm aware of warnings that date all the way back to the 90s, that a pandemic of the sort that we're experiencing at this moment 
was possible are also telling us that zoonotic diseases like the one that caused this pandemic are actually going to become more frequent in the future. So it is a very relevant question to ask, uh, you know, can we meet the test of a resilient system for all of the different parts of the system? So for farmers, for workers, for the buyers, for the eaters, for the industry, being that if we encounter a shock like this in the future, will we be able to continue to produce and sell? Will we be able to buy and process? Will we be able to continue to eat in spite of the fact that this unexpected shock occurred? And if we had to confront this thing again next summer, the structure of the industry right now is not such that we wouldn't continue to experience these disruptions. So we have to ask, how can we make the system more resilient, more responsive to unexpected uh, shocks? How do we get away from the specialization that uh, measured one way is a marvel of global logistics, but exposes us to all the vulnerabilities that Earthrun listed for us. So th those are the major questions that we need to answer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we live in a world as, as, uh, as members of our audience have noticed, we have an audience question here from Ellen Miller in New York, who asks, shouldn't the UN or perhaps other global relief organizations be able to create more public-private partnerships that could work with farmers. I mean, it, it feels like companies like Amazon, companies like FedEx can can get just about anything in the world to your your front doorstep. Couldn't they be part of the solution with this? What we saw during during the the <clears throat> during this COVID response is that there has been more farmer to consumer um, delivery of food. Um, not just through Amazon, Walmart, but through farmers markets, through co-ops. But what we also recognize, and this was that those services were available to consumers who could afford it. And it was much more available, of course, than to the affluent than to the poor. In the United States, the those who are SNAP beneficiaries, what were the old food stamps, could not use those SNAP benefits to purchase food direct from a farmer's market or direct from a cooperative. Um, and so the, but if you could, we also saw a 150% increase by, as I said, the affluent in accessing directly from, uh, from uh, internet purveyors, uh, from everything from Amazon to direct to farm, to direct from farm uh, commodities. And that's where, when you talk about where we need to invest, both domestically and internationally, it is in ensuring that we have systems that are not only accessible, but affordable. Uh, that we are providing both from a government published um, benefit standpoint, the support that is necessary to ensure that those who receive government benefits have those same access to food uh, as the affluent, and that we have processing facilities that are close enough to the consumer that they make that food affordable. 
Well, Ricardo, on top of, of this crisis, we also have the, the chronic problem of climate change. To what degree does our food supply system, does, does our food chain, does, does international agriculture contribute to, to the environmental crisis that is, was with us before COVID and will be with us once, once COVID is presumably you know, tackled? Yeah, there, there's two aspects to that question. Uh, agriculture is involved with climate change, both as one of the industries that contribute to climate change, but also as one of the industries that needs to be resilient to climate change, uh, meaning it needs to be able to continue to deliver food and all of the industrial products that it generates in spite of climate change. And it still has another role, which is that it could actually help to mitigate uh, climate change. Now, uh, let me walk through this just uh, very carefully. Um, there are actually larger contributors uh, by far to climate change. So, you know, the fossil fuel industry, the energy uh, fuel construction, and so on. Um, if you include all aspects of the food system, not just production and agriculture, you can get into uh, a percentage, maybe a little bit north of 20% in terms of the agri-food system contribution to climate change. Now, the interesting thing is that climate change will disrupt production. The way that it will show up for farmers and for the industries that buy from farmers is very similar to what the pandemic has done. That means that there will be failed uh, production. That means that what people are expecting to buy will not be available. Uh, and that means that they, these industries and those farmers have exactly the same interest that we have right now in figuring out how we can become resilient to these kinds of unexpected shocks. Now, the good news is that uh, shifting the structure of agriculture, which is entirely possible to do, uh, these are decisions that are up to us to make and to industry and to government to make jointly, uh, can help to mitigate the worst contributors to climate change from agriculture. Uh, these tend to be the misuse or mismanagement of nitrogen fertilizer. It tends to be the way in which we produce beef. It isn't necessarily that we produce beef. There are ways that beef can be produced that could be uh, uh, far more uh, uh, or far less of a problem for climate change than the system that we have run it right now, and that is a matter of active research. Key thing is that agriculture could contribute to sequestering carbon, in other words, to reverse the thing that is actually causing climate change at the moment. So it is a very relevant question that has to do with everything that the pandemic is highlighting right now. Are we smart enough and are we responsible enough to look ahead and prepare ahead of a disaster so that we can be resilient to climate change? And Ricardo, what are some of the, of the practices in agriculture worldwide that, that you think are, are contributing the most that, that really need to be, to be changed most quickly and most urgently? Well, I, I mentioned a couple of them. Um, let me start out with the one that is the obvious one and the one that I mentioned where there's active research. The, the way in which we currently produce beef uh, is one of the major contributors. One of the factors has to do with the fact that what beef do is convert roughage material that human beings wouldn't be able to eat directly into an edible product, uh, you know, protein-rich uh, food. Um, the, Biologic, uh, biological process that they undergo means that they, uh, or that they use in order to be able to produce that, uh, means that they partner with bacteria and bacteria in their digestive tract actually create the byproduct of methane, which is uh, one of the most active uh, greenhouse gases. 
Um, now, the, the active fields of research are to ask the question, is that necessarily a part of the digestive process? Can we change that? But more importantly, the actual production processes to date have involved extensive grazing of beef to fatten them up in tropical areas of the world that have necessitated deforestation. And it's that deforestation which has unlocked, first of all, the carbon in the forests, and second of all, the carbon in soils, which is made available when we disrupt the natural ecosystems. That's further accelerated when we get into row crop planting, which is typically large extensions of monocrop, that means the same plant, uh, that are annuals, meaning that we disrupt the soil structure every year. So that releases more carbon. The organic matter that is stored in the soil is disrupted, it's oxidized, and then it's released as carbon dioxide. Furthermore, in order to stoke the productivity of those crops, we fertilize with nitrogen. And that nitrogen can be mismanaged in such a way that it can also create potent greenhouse uh, gases through a number of different channels. But nitrous oxide would be one of them. And particularly when you have ponded uh, soils, and rice production is the optimal example, but the production of any cereal grain can lead to the generation of nitrous oxide uh, again. So row crop production and intensive monocrops and large extensions with mismanagement nitrogen fertilizer, that's tied to the final finishing stage of beef production and beef production itself, if it involves extensive grazing on deforested lands, all of that is the conflict or the syndrome that gives us the climate change problem out of agriculture. And there are smarter ways of doing that, as I've mentioned. So, Arthur, you sit on the board of Bayer, which owns Monsanto, which I, I don't think a lot of people realize is the, you know, is the, has essentially got a monopoly on, on the seed industry. Uh, what would you like to see corporations do to sort of step up to, to do things like encourage things like crop rot rotation? You know, if, if you're a poor farmer in, you know, an underdeveloped country, of course you are going to plant the same crop over and over and over again to maximize the amount of money that you can earn to feed your family, even though it does come at a, a longer term consequence to the environment. Well, let me first of all say that uh, Bear does not have a monopoly on the seed industry. Okay. Uh, that uh, there are many competitors in the, uh, several large competitors in the in the seed industry from the commercial standpoint as well as uh, any number of small seed producers across the developing world that uh, Bear does not compete with. Um, but and, and the, I, I want to also underline Bayer's commitment to supporting sustainability. They have made a commitment to providing access to uh, seed and crop protection tools for 100 million smallholder farmers over the next 10 years, recognizing the need for increasing the productivity of smallholders in developing countries. Um, but I want to put that to the side to talk specifically, to talk more broadly about the need for public-private partnerships for addressing the many of the issues that were just raised about what is necessary to change agricultural production. We need to move and, and many companies, including Bayer, are, are researching and investing in new tools that are biological and digital 
that will give uh, farmers access to uh, the capacity to support the kind of uh, regenerative farming and, and conservation farming that were just uh, identified as necessary to address the climate change challenge. There is a, a, a movement in, in agriculture that, that uh, I think the private sector has very much engaged in driving, and that is moving us towards an, an agriculture that is sustainable, not just for today, but for feeding the nine and a half to 10 billion people by 2050, and also protecting our environment. Um, could, I'd love for both of you to address the fact, too, that, that part of this problem internationally is, is a political one. We, we see migration, we see uh, refugees from, from political strife. To what, degree, um, to what degree do you think that is a factor in, in kind of the, the unpreparedness that we really saw uh, on the on the part of the world for this pandemic, essentially a you know a man-made and governments problem. Well, I'll jump in first, if and and because so much of, of my past has been spent working with the most vulnerable uh, consumers and and around the globe, recognizing that um, access to nutritious food is not something that one country alone can can resolve that it will take the global community working together in cooperation between government, private sector, the NGOs, the academia, to support the implementation of the, not just programs, but the investments that are necessary to ensure that we are not just solving problems in our food system for the affluent and affluent farmers, but for the for the low-income farmers, smallholder farmers, as well as low-income eaters. Um, the challenge that we we see today is too much of the response for much of the response for what became a health crisis then an economic crisis and ultimately a food crisis we've resolved as nations and not as a global community we must work together to ensure that the solutions that come online are provided to the entire global community and not just to, as I said, to those who can afford it. That is, is the challenge of our political situation today where too many of, the, of, 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 our, of our countries have said, I'm focusing on my country first as opposed to the, the issues of, of the wider global community. And the, the, we see that 
neither virus nor poverty will will uh, recognize borders. And so our responsibility is to ensure that we are not just dress, addressing the problems for ourselves, but as a global community. So Ricardo, um, before we run out of time, this is this has been a a pretty uh, a pretty dark and and scary conversation. But I'd like to ask both of you: Are you seeing any hopeful signs? Are you seeing any signs of of innovation or perhaps the kind of of redeployment of of resources that that might make the world a little more resilient? In the future, is there any creativity that, that we can point to going on out there? Well, I, I would like to combine <clears throat> the last question that you asked with this one. I understand fully that whenever we deal with something that is as big and as complex as what we've discussed, that we need to walk away with some sign of hope. But I do want to be realistic about the, the uh, hopeful signs that I will list for you by first of all addressing what I think is one major threat. I, I agree very much with what Earthman has said that the issues that we've been discussing are multi-sectoral. However, I will take a very strong position that I think that one of the distortions that's majorly responsible for the disruptions that we've experienced is disproportionate corporate power, monopoly power, because in many cases that exceeds the power of governments. And uh, let me give you an example. Uh, in, in the theory of the market, um, when you have all of us competing in a self-interested fashion, the theory is that we should produce the best outcomes for both buyers and sellers. When that does not happen, when we have a market breakdown, then we've all agreed by social contract in the West, in liberal governments, that then there is a role for government to step in and actually make things equitable for all players to deal with market breakdown. We saw severe market breakdown during the uh, pandemic for a number of different reasons, and we saw the manifestation of corporate power, and it showed up this way. We uh, know what we need to do to protect workers in the field harvesting fruits and vegetables that normally work at close quarters, as well as meatpacking workers that, again, work in uh, close quarters under conditions that make them extremely susceptible to transmission of a disease that uh, travels by aerosols. We know that. Uh, government agencies, CDC, OSHA, have actually specified to the industry, the meatpacking industry, what they need to do. However, we saw differential political power manifested. The meat industry specifically wanted for workers to be declared essential and to show up at great peril to their health and their personal security and that of their communities without necessarily making the adjustments necessary to make their workplaces safer. And they got a presidential executive order in place for that to come about. They manifested political power. The workers don't have that political power and therefore were compelled, if they wanted to keep their jobs, to show up and work under hazardous conditions. Now, this is just one example. That means that as long as corporations have at least that degree of influence, if not are more powerful than governments themselves, then that multisectoral uh, scenario where all of us represent our interest and we work out solutions that actually benefit all of us is not possible. It's not within the realm of possibility. So we need to deal with disproportionate corporate power, which right now, given the choice, as we saw in the case of meatpacking industry, will you make a decision to protect your workers or to secure your profits and shareholder uh, interests? They chose to protect their profits and their shareholder interests. So that's something that needs to be uh, addressed. Now, hope. 
we did recover to some extent, some stability and manifested some resilience by doing the opposite of what uh, specialization does. That is that we found ways in which we could actually go to redundance where we could find redistribution in a, a less concentrated way through mechanisms such as food hubs or repurpose farm to school networks, reverse them so that uh, communities could go to schools where there were kitchens where there was distribution of food or a terminal distribution of food and then uh, access food. Uh, local markets, CSAs, things of that sort manifested the redundant capacity in the system at a regional scale, and that's what we'll need. Well, thank you so much, both of you, but certainly this, this pandemic has made the world feel like a much smaller and more vulnerable and interconnected place. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this segment. Thank you again for joining us today. I'll be right back with the CEO and president of Heifer International, Pierre Ferrari. So please stick around. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.